a listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Join us each week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Tannock. I'm a journalist. And Keith, today we're looking at gun violence in the US. Now, we already know that gun-related violence and crime in the US is bad, but it, it actually has risen over the past two years from what's been called pandemic stress. Yes, I think this is a, a report from the Sufain Centre. We've used uh, quite a lot of their materials. They produce um, a regular what's called Intel Brief. They're based in New York. And they've got a, a recent article on attempting to understand the unique American e- epidemic of gun violence. So, America is really unusual when it comes to to guns. And now they're talking about pandemic violence. This is related to people shut up at home. Some parts of America, as you know, have been very hard hit by the COVID crisis. And somehow or other, this has also managed to contribute to the increased violence. So the people, we we get now about 45,000 people a year dying through gun violence in the United States. Not all of them are murdered. Many of them commit suicide. And guns, the easy availability of guns facilitates that. And so people stuck at home, perhaps worried about how they're going to pay the rent or the mortgage, or perhaps whether or not they're even going to have a job to go back to, etc. This has obviously added to um, the amount of stress that people are under. And so this report suggests that there are now these outbreaks of pandemic related violence. And of course, we've got a whole range of other issues that are feeding into this. Um, I was interested to see the campaign, for example, to defund the police, which is a good idea, but an appalling slogan. Um, I can see why they selected the slogan, because it sounds good, defund the police. But I think it's an appalling slogan, because we're not going to defund the police, but we want to rearrange the duties that police do so that they are not involved. For example, you go to American schools, they've actually got police officers in the corridors. Now, we have violent schools in Australia, but we don't deploy police officers on a regular basis. Mm, staggering to think it could get to that level, isn't it? It is. So, um, so the idea of defund the police is simply to say, all right, well, police will not be the first port of call for every crisis. So we will use social workers, um, which is what we tend to do in this country, or we have mental health nurses, et cetera, and not uh, police who will arrive with guns. So there is this um, increased number of gun deaths, also the increased number of gun purchases and the increased number of amounts of ammunition that get bought in the United States each year. So it's for me, it's a real mystery. Um, I've lived in the United States uh, at various times in the last half century, and clearly the Americans have an unusual relationship with guns. It's written into the Constitution, Second Amendment. They have the right to bear arms. That was brought in because they had a uh, no-standing army. They they did not like large-standing armies. The last one who had a large-standing army was King George III, and they rebelled against him. So the idea was that instead of having a large-standing army, every American will have a gun, which means it'll be stupid for anybody to try to invade America. And so they'd get shot. So that's the basis of the Second Amendment, which was 
put into the uh, Bill of Rights and at the time created very little controversy. It just seemed to be a very standard sort of idea. And now, of course, you, you, it's, I think it's impossible to regulate the guns. This article is saying that areas that do try to regulate the guns, like Detroit, um, San Francisco, New York, the guns still flow in from neighbouring areas. In fact, they even refer to a particular highway, I-95, which is the highway corridor which runs from the south up to New York. I believe the Iron Pipeline, the is that Iron what they call pipeline, it? The Iron Pipeline, yeah. And what's so, that significance of that pipeline when you're talking about states that have differing gun laws? Well, New York has tried to limit the availability of guns, but the guns are easily available in Georgia, South Carolina and Virginia. And so you buy your guns in those southern states and then carry them up into New York. So even though New York is saying we're trying to restrict the availability of guns, nonetheless they end up being carried uh, up, up that iron pipeline. So you've got this constant flow of illegal guns across the state borders and no national approach. So it really is hard for each of the individual states, even the ones that are trying, to make it work. That's why I'm very pessimistic about gun control. It's just so embedded within the American DNA. And yet the availability of guns itself would not be the standard factor because um, I've also lived in Switzerland and every home has a gun. Uh, that's based on the idea that men up to the age of 55 have to do annual military service. They keep the guns at home. And in the event of the Germans or the French coming back over the border, which they haven't done for 200 years, but if they were, they'd be confronted with these armed citizens. And yet you feel perfectly safe in Switzerland. There, There is an incredible law-abiding culture. And I've, I dine out on all my experiences of living in, in Geneva. For example, you're not allowed to take a shower after 10 o'clock at night because the water in the pipes in an apartment building <clears throat> will keep the neighbours awake. Uh, Isn't that interesting? <laughs> I mean, shift workers would appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, the, the Swiss are law-abiding. So even though all the homes that you pass by may well contain guns, you don't feel unsafe. Where in the United States, you're on this permanent edge of anxiety because you know there are guns there and you know that people are going to be willing to use them. Well, what's interesting is one of the arguments from the gun lobby is that it's not about the availability of guns. It's not the problem. They say that they actually blame the individuals that have those guns. But clearly it's a wide-reaching problem and all of availability has to be looked at at the first point of call. Well, I would have thought so. Um, the problem for me, though, is that this is so inbred into the American DNA as I just don't see how you can change it. But their slogan is, guns don't cure people, people cure people. So the idea is that Americans are defective, mentally defective, and therefore they, they are the ones who go around creating the problems for the rest of society because these people are just so unstable. So if you take the recent uh, court case that we need to look at on the Sandy Hook settlement. So the Sandy Hook massacre from about a decade ago, the youngster who was involved in that had a mother who had legally bought an, an assault rifle, uh, which you hardly need living in America, uh, but useful if you're going to invade Iraq. But other than that, you don't really need one living in America. Um, but he shot his own mother while she was sleeping in her bed and then carried the rifle and a firearm, an ordinary uh, hand weapon, off to the school where he then shot up the school. And you'd have to wonder 
Australia has young men who are disturbed as well, but they don't end up turning to guns. They don't get access to guns. So it in brings the way it back that, to that accessibility. Yeah, issue. it is. So it is an issue of accessibility. It's access. I think it's culture. There are whole. There are just so many things. So in Switzerland, again, going back to the society where there are plenty of guns, you do not get youngsters going around conducting these mass murders. So for me, it's fascinating. America, as this article says, um, understanding the unique American epidemic of gun violence. So what we're seeing in America is unique to the Western world, this level of violence. And it's so different from, say, Switzerland or in Britain where you just can't get access to weapons. And in fact, they're in the news so often that mass shootings have almost become a normalised part of the life and everyday news. So it's almost like they happen so regularly Americans accepted it as a part of life. I, I think that's it, you know, that if, if you're an American, you pay taxes and you run the risk of getting shot. You know, it's all part of that, if you like, the standard way of being an American. I've emphasized to my Boston University students that while they're here in Australia, statistically speaking, this is the safest six months they're going to have of their life because when they get back to the United States, they're going to be exposed to all this violence. So Sandy Hook was uh, took place um, in a very quiet location in the United States. So it's not even though, and if you're in Detroit, if you're in Chicago, you can hear the, the bullets all the time in certain areas. But other areas are generally very quiet, and so there isn't that problem. You're listening to Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. I'm Sasha Tannock, and Keith, today we're talking about gun violence in the US. Now, you mentioned Sandy Hook, and in fact, uh, just in February this year, there was a landmark deal involving a firearms manufacturer which has just settled a lawsuit brought about by gun violence victims. It's the first one, in fact, since Congress granted the whole industry immunity from civil liability in 2005, and $73 million is the deal, so that's a significant amount. It is indeed, and it's a very significant turning point. And just reading about it reminds me almost of the case of um, uh, tobacco, um, as they say, where there is smoke in the United States, there's a lawyer. I think we're <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the anti-tobacco lobby managed to take on the tobacco lobby, not through politics. The political process is broken. America has the best politicians that money could buy, a bit like Australia. Instead, they work through the legal system and they have just... Um, been able to uh, bring about all sorts of cases against the big tobacco companies, including forcing them to conduct a, what's called discovery. So discovery is where you are able to get access to the files of the company. Uh, and the tobacco ones are fascinating because it shows that very early on in the piece, the tobacco companies realized that they were selling a product that was killing their own customers which means that they have to recruit a 1,000 new customers a day to replace those who die or give up smoking one way or another. So I find it fascinating with this Sandy Hook settlement that they're going to get access to all the files from Remington relating to the marketing, as well as, as you say, 73 million American dollars, so over 100 million Australian dollars involved. Now, what is as you say, there there is this indemnity uh, from prosecution, uh, from being sued, that was adopted 
by the gun lobby, by the politicians. Remember, it's just the politicians who are saying, looking at the experience of the tobacco industry, we're going to protect our friends in the gun industry. We're not going to have them being sued. Now, what is significant about this um, Sandy Hook settlement is the way in which they're able to get it on a marketing issue. In other words, not directly the people who got killed, but the way in which Remington marketed the products. The, the argument was that the marketing was directly aimed at impressionable young men to get them off video games and get them onto the use of rifles. And, and that's what the court upheld. The, the, previously, the uh, Remington company had tried to argue, you know, we're, we're protected by this U.S. legislation. But instead, uh, the lawyers for the families very brilliantly came up with this idea. It's a marketing issue. It's not a gun issue. It's marketing. It's the way you marketed your guns rather than the guns themselves. And it does raise an interesting question. How much responsibility should the gun industry have? I mean, at the moment, they have been somewhat protected, but should they have ultimate responsibility for well, the product they're selling? And this is exactly what the debate is going to be on now. So this new court case, I think, is going to um, send real shockwaves through the, the gun lobby uh, because the gun lobby obviously don't want to be surrendering the guns and yet they might find the lawyers come after them, a bit like the tobacco industry. Where there's smoke, there's a lawyer. Now, wherever there's gun smoke, there's going to be a lawyer. You bring up the gun lobby, though. I mean, in the US, the strength and power of the gun lobby can't be underestimated. I mean, they're influential, very rich, and impact a lot of government policymaking. So, I mean, that's at the heart of this whole gun problem, surely. It is. It's part of the DNA, but it's also the lobbying power of the... Um, various um, arms manufacturers. They employ good lobbyists. Um, they employ moving stars. Remember the late Charlton Heston at his rallying speech at the National Rifle Association? The NRA has gone through a few upheavals domestically, but nonetheless, the NRA is a very important, the National Rifle Association is a very important organisation still for lobbying in the United States. Um, and they're always on the lookout for new customers. So we might even find NRA trying to set up more in this country. We uh, need to congratulate the then Prime Minister, John Howard, for his stand on all the guns. It's interesting. I was When I was on the Foreign Minister's Advisory Committee, we got to hear about a meeting between John Howard and George uh, W. Bush. Um, they were agreed on most things, including the disastrous invasion of Iraq, but one thing on which they did disagree was gun control. And John Howard uh, stood his ground when Bush started to complain about the amount of gun control that we had following the Port Arthur massacre in Tasmania uh, in the mid-1980s. He stood his ground. He refused to back down on this issue. So full marks to John Howard in that regard. I'm critical of him in many others, but <laughs> on well, gun control, he was good. And Australia <laughs> now has some of the tightest gun laws in the world, but, I mean, are we ever likely to see any kind of amnesty in America like the one we had in here in I Australia? I really do Arthur? doubt it. I think something like 33,000 different pieces of legislation in the United States regulating guns, some very strict like New York, some which are virtually non-existent like Georgia. It's going to be very difficult to rationalise all of that into one standard piece of legislation. And in fact, even discussion around that has focused on, in some states, regulation, but there's never really been talk of a ban or an amnesty. They're just talking about 
more rules surrounding how you get it by a gun and the paperwork and that kind of thing? Well, the, the problem is the Second Amendment, right? So we're, we're back to where we were in the 1790s, if you, if you like. We've, we've gone back over 200 years and there is this Second Amendment right. And in this country, uh, we don't take our Constitution all that seriously. Most people have never read the Australian Constitution, which is just as well because it won't make much sense to you. There's no reference to the Prime Minister. It gives the impression that Queen Victoria still runs the country. Whereas in the United States, the Constitution is referred to every day in one context or another. So the Second Amendment right to bear arms will require a constitutional amendment to get it banned. And it's impossible, I think, now to amend the American Constitution. The most recent campaign has been on the Equal Rights Amendment Act, uh, which has been supported by all the surviving first ladies. These are the uh, wives of uh, American presidents, supported um, by a number of groups, and yet the Americans have not voted to support the Equal Rights Amendment Act. So because it just shows now the diversity of American opinion, and that is the problem, I think, for Americans generally. The country is now just so diverse. It's very different from when you had a group of white property-owning males adopting the Bill of Rights. Uh, now it's just too varied, and and so it's very. I think it's impossible now to amend the American Constitution. And in fact, this article talks about the widespread normalisation of anti-government and anti-regulation sentiment, and says that that's made guns more acceptable Absolutely. in many spheres. And a lot of these militia groups operate under the slogan that I love my country, I fear my government, and so I need to have a gun to defend myself. And you've got a variety of militia groups. FBI have warned that the, the real problems of terrorism now in the United States do not come from Islamist groups from overseas, but from domestic terrorist groups and the use of their violence. That, that is a risk that we run. And so um, you've got a lot of groups that will never hand over their vehicle, uh, their uh, weapons. And if you were to try to confiscate them, you'll end up with a flourishing black market, which is a, a problem that we have in Australia. There is a black market for guns. We have limited them, but people who are really determined can still get guns, as in as in Great Britain. And look, it does appear that the outlook looks grim. I mean, we've had years of record gun sales in the US. The pandemic, as we've heard, has contributed to that. More violent extremism leads to more violent gun crimes. So it isn't a very positive outlook, is it? No, but I'd love to give you some good news. I'd love to be able to say the, the recent Sandy Hook uh, settlement is good, but there's some doubt as to whether it'll unleash a flood of lawsuits against gun makers simply because the Remington company was caught out on an issue of marketing rather than gun violence. So if you like, it was a technicality which got the, the gun maker into trouble and the way they'd market it to, uh, to young, impressionable young males. So I don't think the Sandy Hook settlement although it's very welcomed, um, is really going to open the floodgates. But we never know. I think what it has done is to suggest, look, forget about trying to work through the political system. The politicians are at dead loss. But what can we do now in the legal system? What sort of legislation can we use, be it advertising legislation, marketing or whatever, to go after the gun makers? So it's a challenge to the legal fraternity, More, be more creative when you work out how you're going to sue people. 
Certainly a challenge of mammoth proportions. We have to be very grateful here in Australia of our gun laws. Thanks, Keith. I look forward to our chat next week. Thank you. That was this week's episode of Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. Make sure you tune in next week when we'll break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what's likely to happen in the future. Listener.